Thanks for listening to Mosaic, a Jesus-centered communities podcast. Our goal is to help people experience a Jesus-centered life. You can find out more about us at welcometomosaic.info. We invite you to subscribe to this podcast as well as rate and review it so others can hear it as well. Enjoy the message. Good morning, friends. You can have a seat. Um, I am excited to be here with you this morning. It really is a gift to be able to worship together. If you were here two weeks ago, you remember um, I introduced uh, and shared with you my dear friend Scott Pollock. And and if you were here, you remember he walked us um, through the story behind the song of the scriptures. And it was a beautiful thing. And if you weren't here for that, I highly recommend you take the time. I promise you, trust me, it is worth your time to go back and watch it online. Um, It was just a, it was a powerful and important message for all of us. Um, Today, uh, Scott is back with us and he is going to uh, pause for a moment and zoom in on one special uh, story that has just, uh, is dripping with beauty. And it's one of those stories that is so easy to skip over and, and read through quickly. But uh, today we're going to pause and just uh, linger there for a while. So please help me welcome back Scott Pollock. Thanks, brother. Such an honor to be with you again. Thank you so much for uh, having me. Let's, let's pray one more time and then we'll jump into our scripture passage. Father, we bless you and thank you. We look forward to all that you have for us in your word, your living word. We place ourselves under the authority of your word, not myself, not a human voice, but the living and inspired word that you have preserved for us. We place ourselves under its authority and we ask that you would speak through it to our hearts as you promised to do. And so wherever you are tuning in or sitting here, just let me offer you an opportunity to ask God to speak to you this morning directly to your heart. That's a prayer he loves to answer, so just ask him to speak to you, to change your and transform your mind and heart. Maybe you could extend that prayer to someone sitting around you or someone you know is tuning in or at another church family this morning, ask God to speak to them. I would ask humbly that you would say a quick prayer for me that God would speak through me this morning would be true and understandable. Our Father, we trust you. We love you. We bless you. We thank you. We honor you and worship you and glorify your name. You are good and strong and beautiful and just and holy and gracious. You pursue us. Your eye is constantly towards us. Your word says that you sing over us. We bless you, God, for your love and grace. We trust you and thank you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as a pastor, I have an embarrassing confession to make this morning. I love the church. I love the local church, and I've spent the better part of my adult life uh, for almost 30 years now serving the local church. My confession is that I have unfortunately become a little lazy cynical, perhaps jaded, um, when it comes to um, 
the gathering of the local church. And I didn't know that until uh, a few days ago. Um, as much as I um, thank God for showing me that, I didn't know that till a few days ago. And a few days ago, I was in Warsaw, Poland, all this last week. Um, being a, it's a privilege and an honor with some friends to be able to minister to um, uh, some a good number of Ukrainian refugees and orphans and Ukrainian pastors that have come out of Ukraine um, and are now um, taking up residence in Poland. And the last night I was there, which was Thursday night this past week, I was invited to a house church of almost entirely Ukrainians and refugees. Um, and it went on for um, five hours. And uh, we sat in, um, around uh, a little coffee table in a humble house, beautiful. Um, we shared how God has really in, um, invaded and um, shown himself in our lives. They read through the scriptures, probably 20 different passages of scripture. Um, we prayed. There was a brand new believer in the room, and she was baptized in the bathtub around the corner. Um, at the end, they surrounded her and prayed, and they had snacks. Um, and it was glorious. It was gorgeous. And it reminded me that the church gathering together, the church is you and me, not the building, right? The church family gathering together had become a little too familiar for me, a little too expected. This is what we do when we get together and we go through the motions, perhaps. I have confession to make that it happened to me in my heart. You know, there's a danger in familiarity. There's a danger in doing the same things. Um, and I want to look at a very familiar passage today, and it would be my heart and goal to completely transform that passage for you. So the way that you see this passage, um, maybe in the past, you will never, ever see it that way again. Not in a perpendicular direction, but in a more fuller, intended direction that was written in the scriptures. So if you um, are familiar with the gospel accounts, you may actually be able to perceive the image behind me and know where we're going, maybe. But we're going to be in John chapter 2, the story where Jesus turns water into wine. So if you've got your Bibles, we'll be in John chapter 2. Uh, and let me remind you that there's a danger in familiarity. Did you know that um, a majority of traffic accidents happen within five miles of your home address? And that is because those are the roads that you travel the most and you become familiar and you stop paying attention. Did you know that there's great danger in familiarity in your marriage? You know, you courted your uh, wife and dated her and pursued her and made her mixtapes and gave her flowers and chocolates and those kinds of things. And now that you've been married 10 or 22 years like me, uh, the mixtapes are long gone. And there's a familiarity, you know. Um, presumption over a long period of time feels awful lot like neglect, right? Familiarity. There's a danger in that. And so there's a danger when we approach our scriptures and open the scriptures and we read a passage that we think we know and we glide across the surface of it, not ever really taking the chance to stop and look. 
And so we want to take uh, a chance to stop and look. Uh, again, not completely opposite direction from maybe you know this story, but a deeper, a deeper dive. And so what you may know about the Gospel of John is that it's different than the other three. The other three are called synoptic Gospels, which um, is a Greek way of, of saying that they see the life of Jesus the same way. Um, for instance, all three of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they, they picture the journey of Jesus to Jerusalem only once primarily, right? We have Luke's birth story and his adolescence story when Jesus was 12. But uh, uh, except for that, um, all of the gospels are seeing Jesus triumphantly move to Jerusalem at the end of his life only. But we know that Jesus as a good Jew would have gone to Jerusalem every year, at least three times a year for the mandatory feast days, Passover and Pentecost and the Feast of Tabernacles, etc. Um, he would have gone there all the time. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke, because of the way that they're framing the life of Jesus, they want us to see his triumphant procession to Jerusalem to die as our sacrifice, the Messiah, an atonement for our sins. And they frame it in that way. The Gospel of John sees Jesus move to Jerusalem many times. So it's very different. Um, the Gospel of John doesn't have some of the same, the many stories that the other three have, like his baptism or the Lord's Supper. He doesn't have those stories. He has different stories that the other three don't. He has different conversations that the other three don't. And so the first three are synoptic. They see the life of Jesus in roughly the same way. John has always been different. And it looks at Jesus uniquely. And actually, it's very much based on the life of Moses. Yes, you just heard me correctly. The Gospel of John is based very much on the life of Moses. He's the second major character in the Gospel of John after Jesus. And I wish I had time to show that to you in all of its beauty, but this text will prove it. I, I can also prove it to you in the first three words of the Gospel. Uh, in the beginning. That's the way that Moses' books start in Genesis. And Moses is mentioned and alluded to in almost every chapter. We get the first um, introduction to Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was with God in the beginning, and we're focused on Jesus, the Word. And then we get down to verse 17 of chapter 1, and it says, The law came through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. So there's going to be a comparison and contrast for the whole gospel from Jesus to Moses. And the comparison is always the same. Moses was good, Jesus is better. Moses was good, Jesus is better. And we're going to see that in our story today because of the details that are included in John chapter 2. Now, here's something you need to know about ancient literature and ancient history. This is a biography of the most important person that has ever lived. And the way that it was written, likely on papyrus, um, was very laborious process, even creating the paper or parchment on which it is written. And the fact that this was inspired by one of the apostles, John, John, one of the top three of Jesus's best friends, Peter, James, and John, um, he would have not wasted a single word. Do you believe that? There's no detail in any book of scripture that is unimportant. I believe that God has inspired every single word and the whole 
to communicate what he wanted. There are some interesting details in this story. Now let's see them for how um, an original audience, a Jewish member of the early church, steeped in the Mosaic law and the culture of the East in Jerusalem and Judea would have read it. Let's look at John chapter two, just 11 verses. We're just going to camp out here today. Last time I was with you, we went from beginning to end, like 30 different passages. We're going to be in one today. All right. Well, rest your mind. Okay. Uh, chapter two, verse one of John on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, Jesus, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. And now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And Jesus said to them, fill their water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. And when the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and he didn't know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew... The head waiter called to the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Verse 11, this beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Let's just start in verse 11. And let's look at that last verse. This the beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in it. We have glory in this story. And something about this caused the disciples to believe in Jesus. This is our first clue, verse 11, that this story is not as simple as you think that it is. This, the first of Jesus' signs he did in Cana of Galilee, and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. How do we see Jesus' glory in this first of his signs? The book of John, the Gospel of John, is often called the Gospel of Signs because this passage and the rest of them go through, some see seven, some see more than seven. I see a collection of many signs that Jesus does that calls people to understand who he really is. The eternal son of God, the Messiah, the priest, prophet, and king that is promised in the Old Testament to come and renew all things and die on the cross and be raised from the dead so that our faith in him forgives us of our sins and welcomes us into a secure relationship with God forever. The book of signs. Now, where does Moses come in? Well, if you remember Moses in his story in Exodus, um, when he is uh, an ethnic Hebrew, um, but an adopted Egyptian, and he knows that, and now he is a murderer, fugitive, runs from Egypt into Midian, and now he's a shepherd. Okay, so he's a Hebrew, Egyptian, fugitive, murderer, shepherd, husband, father, all of these things. And then God meets him at the burning bush. You remember the story, hopefully. And um, God says, um, I'm going to send you back. And Moses is like, I don't know about that. Uh, what's your name? You know, like, I'm not all that good at speaking, all this stuff. And here's what God says to um, Moses in the burning bush. He says, I'm going to give you some signs so that people may believe that I sent you. 
What's that in your hand? Staff turns into a snake. He picks it up. Put your hand in and it comes leprous and I can heal and puts it in. And then pour some water out of the Nile and it'll become blood. These are the signs that I will give you so that people believe. That same idea is in Exodus 3 and 4 and 7 and 10 and all the way through. Signs all the way through. So here is Jesus in the Gospel of John, which is very much Moses. Jesus says, I'm going to give you signs. And the purpose statement of the Gospel of John in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31 says this, these signs have been recorded to you for Jesus. The signs that Jesus did, not all of them, but these, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and by believing find life in his name. It's a book of signs and it's based on Moses and this is the first one. Here's my question. With all of that preface, do you think the first sign that Jesus does in this incredible gospel is going to be about social embarrassment? Because that's what it sounds like. This lowly bride and groom ran out of wine, and it's rather embarrassing. Let's let Jesus solve the problem. He happens to be there. Do you think the first sign in this beautiful gospel is going to be about social embarrassment? I don't. There is much, much more, much, much more at stake. And the fact that the miracle isn't even spoken of, it's like, an incognito miracle. We don't see it. He doesn't pray over. He doesn't touch it. He just says, fill it up and draw it. And then it goes. And then it's like passively says the waiter, which drew the water, which had become wine, didn't even know what was. It's very strange. Jesus doesn't explain it. The only explanation we get is right at the beginning. Verse four, when Jesus says something really awkward to his mom, let's look at it again. Verse one. Oh, on the third day when Jesus was at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. You know, wedding is an important biblical theme. We see it at the beginning in Genesis 2, and we see it at the end in Revelation 21 and 22. And it's interesting that Jesus chooses a wedding, and he is later going to be called the bridegroom himself, and us, the church, his bride. And when we get to heaven, we will sit down at the wedding supper of the lamb and he will welcome his bride in Revelation. Wedding is a very, very important symbol all throughout scripture. Even in some of the Old Testament prophets, God is seen as a bridegroom marrying Israel, his brides. Very prevalent. Interesting that Jesus chooses a wedding. A very Jewish wedding, which would have lasted uh, seven days. This is probably why they ran out of wine. Seven-day wedding. He chooses it in Cana of Galilee. Now, we know later that Nathaniel, one of Jesus' disciples, was from Cana of Galilee. It's about nine miles north of Nazareth, um, where Jesus spent his boyhood years. And uh, the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Now, we don't know how many we have, but we know a couple of disciples from the previous chapter that have already begun to follow Jesus. Now, look at verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to him, woman, now let's just stop there. Because <laughs> if my 18-year-old son spoke to my wife that way, we'd have an issue, Right? Hey, son, have you taken out the trash? And he says, woman. We're like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> I need you to understand, first of all, that this sounds harsh for us. I hope it sounds harsh for you. Uh, it was not at all harsh in the original Greek and ancient Near Eastern. It's actually a term of endearment. 
to Jesus. He, he is saying very, very graciously and warmly, okay? It's totally lost in translation from an Eastern Hebrew, Jew, Greek language to a Western English mind. But I'll tell you, he is not angry with his mother. He is warmly engaging her. It's almost as if the closest we would have is something like madam, but even that doesn't go as far as it should, okay? It's almost dear, dear mother, dear woman. What is, what does this have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. This is the only explanation Jesus gives of the miracle. It's the only explanation the whole text gives of the miracle. And what does he say? Woman, what does this have to do with us? It's literally in Greek. What does this have between you and me? Dear woman. And then... The heart of the explanation is this. My hour has not yet come. This is an important theme in the book of John, and it begins here. And we see Jesus say several times, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come until we get to John chapter 13, verse 1. And if you know your Bible in John, this is John's version of the Last Supper. It's the night that Jesus would have been betrayed, the night before he dies on the cross. And in John 13, chapter 1, Jesus says, my hour has come. Knowing that the Father had sent him and that he had accomplished all that the Father had given him, his hour has come. He set aside his garments, took on the servant towel, and began to wash the disciples' feet. My hour has come. We're waiting for that moment in the Gospel of John. It doesn't get here for thir until 13 verse, chapter 13, verse 1. Here, my hour has not yet come, so he's telling us something. He's saying, this is an important moment. It's going to begin my revelation to the people. This is going to begin my manifestation to the people. This is going to out me as the Messiah. My hour has not yet come. And notice what Mary does. I love this. She doesn't argue with him. She doesn't even answer. She just turns to the servants and go, do whatever he says. <laughs> Jesus didn't even say, yes, I'll do it. You know, he didn't say, yeah, mom, anything for you, right? He just says, dear mother, madam, what does this have between you and me? My hour has not yet come. And Mary goes, uh, say to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, verse 6 is really important, but we would read right over this. Again, as Western Roman thinkers in English, we would read, but six is incredibly important. It sets the context for what Jesus is going to do. Now, there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Okay, wow. Um, 20 or 30 gallons, six, that's 120 to 180 gallons. Of what, and he says, fill them up to the brim, which means that they were not full. And they're six. They're set aside for the Jewish rite of purification, which comes from where? Comes from the book of Leviticus. Who wrote that down for us? But Moses. This is very, very Mosaic law. This is the law covenant at Sinai. And Jesus is saying there, and John is recording it for us, that right there in front of them is a physical picture, an image of the Mosaic law. 
In fact, there's very little. I have recently read through the first five books of Moses just to refresh myself. And in preparation for this message, I looked and studied for the passages that talk about washing of hands. There are there, but they're very, very few. But it seems that in between the writing of that and the time of Jesus, that the Pharisees um, maybe ramped up that idea. In Matthew 15, for instance, um, Jesus' disciples are eating and the Pharisees come and they say, hey, why do your dudes not wash their hands properly according to our tradition? And he says, why have you set aside the Mosaic law for the sake of your tradition? Right? He's challenging them. And the Pharisees reveal, hey, we have certain ways to do this. We have certain ways to wash your hands if you go to Israel today. And I've been many times, I hope and pray that you have a chance to go. It's absolutely life-changing. If you go to any of the Orthodox areas, like the Wailing Wall, the Western Retention Wall of the Temple Mount, there's a bathroom next to it, a large one for men, a large one for women, they're separate, and there are metal pitchers in the sinks because they have to wash their hands in a very specific way, pour water onto their hands and let it drip off of their elbow. You see it every time and they flick their hands like this and then they walk out because it's very, very traditional for them. It's written in their rabbinic law, not in the Old Testament, but in the rabbinic commentary on the Old Testament. This is probably what the Pharisees would have talking to Jesus about and this is probably why the six stone water pots are there. Filled at least partially, maybe, maybe they're totally empty. I don't know. Is this a bit, we don't want to get too far into the weeds on this, but is the fact that they're not filled say something? This is a picture of the Mosaic law, six of them. Numbers are important for Hebrew Eastern thinkers. Six is the imperfect number. Seven is the perfect number. There are six Stone water pots set aside for the Jewish rite of purification, each containing 20 to 30 gallons. Now, you know what he's about to do. He's going to about to turn this water after they fill it up into wine. And I did the math based on a 750 milliliter wine bottle. How many wine bottles come out of those things? Can you imagine? Now we're ranging between 20 or 30 gallons. That's 120 gallons to 180 gallons. How much wine comes out of that in bottles? 900 bottles of wine. This is meant to shock us, even in our day. It's meant to say this is super abundant. They are not going to run out again. Now, let me say I'm not condoning drinking 900 bottles of wine or even condoning drinking to drunkenness or anything like that. Jesus isn't doing that. But you need to know something about wine for the Jews. Wine was very, very important to Jewish culture. Very, very important in the Old Testament. In fact, there was a Jewish rabbinical statement that says there is no joy without wine. Okay? Don't give that a hearty amen in a bad American Western way. Okay? Like, nudge. I told you. I told you. All right? Um, let's, let's, let's do this biblically and respectfully and responsibly. All right? But let's understand that for the Jew, wine was a symbol of something very important. Okay? A blessing for the Jews from the Old Testament would say, I pray that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would bless you to sit under your own vine and fig tree. 
to sit under your own vine and fig tree because that was a small picture of the fullness of the kingdom of God. And he said, wine is important. You get to Isaiah chapter 25, uh, the book of Amos, Jeremiah 31, Joel 2, a lot of the major and minor prophets, they will say, in the latter days, the mountain of the Lord will be filled and it will be filled to feasting with sweet wine. This was a picture of the kingdom of God all throughout the scriptures. Jeremiah 31, which is the new covenant passage in the book of Jeremiah, he says that the uh, treader of grapes will overtake the planter of grapes and it will flow with sweet wine, the kingdom of God, in the latter days of the Messiah when he comes back. Wine was an incredibly important image. It's not wise for us when we read this to just think, oh, okay, regular water, regular wine. It wasn't regular water. And it wasn't regular wine. So here's my big idea. I never, ever, ever want you to see this again as Jesus changes water into wine. That's not good enough because it's bigger than that. This is the first sign. He manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So what is it? This is what I want to get into your heart and mind. That Jesus reveals his mission by changing the water of ceremonial cleansing into the wine of kingdom celebration. It's a very, very different thing. What was he saying? He's saying that this first sign says something important. There's a banner over this story, a huge banner. What does the banner say? I gave you a hint to it earlier. The banner says better. Jesus is better. And his mission to come brings better things than the Mosaic law of ceremonial cleansing. Jesus has come to transform the water of ceremonial cleansing, what we must do to earn our place in the presence of God. He's going to transform that into kingdom celebration and welcome into the presence of God. And that cannot be easily overestimated. This is an honor-shame culture. And so it would have been very, very shameful for the bride and groom to run out of wine. But this is not simply about social embarrassment. This is so, so, so much more. And we'll show that to you in the end of the passage, but let's pause here for just a couple of seconds and let's work on some application. One, do you underestimate Jesus' ability to transform. Might you be looking at your life, your issues, your difficulties, your trials, your quandaries, your complex questions that you're struggling with right now. You're writing them down on paper and these numbers don't add up to that number and this relationship seems to be going downhill instead of uphill and all of these plans and dreams and my calling and my identity are really, really struggling. There's fog and mire and I can't seem to make my way through. Do you might... Do you may struggle with, might you struggle with Jesus not being big enough to 
really handle that? Might you read your life as, oh yeah, I remember Jesus changes water into wine. Or might you take a step back, look at it anew and go, no, wait a second. No, this is way bigger. Jesus is revealing his mission, what he came to do by changing water of ceremonial cleansing into the wine of kingdom celebration. There's so much more here. It also tells us something about what the Mosaic law was for. What was the purpose of the Mosaic law? This is a new and growing conversation in the Christian church today. What was the purpose of the law? Well, the scriptures will tell us very, very clearly that the first purpose was to reveal the character of God, how holy he is. He is high and lifted up and totally different and set apart from us. We can't approach him willy-nilly. We can't approach him as we want. We approach him as he deserves. His character is holy. All throughout the Pentateuch and Torah, he says, be holy because I am holy. This is how we're doing this. And if you do it wrong, Aaron, who is a big dude in the Old Testament, his first two sons worship in a way that doesn't align with the prescription of God and they die and they're trying to worship and God says no you don't do it your way you do it my way my law reveals my holiness second thing in the New Testament tells us uh, is a little backwards that the law was given so that sin may increase Romans 5 tells us come again wait what and then Romans 7 tells us, Paul does in a sort of autobiographical way, he goes, yeah, um, I didn't have a problem with coveting until the law was written that I shouldn't covet. And when the law came to me that I shouldn't covet, I saw that I coveted everything. And so the law was, if you notice, built in with an expectation of failure. Because the law was given, and then we have a whole books of the all of Leviticus, first 11 chapters of Numbers, are talking about what you do when you break the law. So the law was given so that sin may increase. Now, why would you? Well, that's the third point, that God gave his people the law, not to lead them to the law, but to lead them through the law to the Messiah. Galatians chapter 3 and 5 tell us that the law was our tutor that led us to Jesus Christ. And Jesus in Matthew 5 said, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he changed everything. He changed everything. Do you underestimate Jesus' ability to transform? Do you misunderstand what Jesus comes to transform. He says, no longer do you earn your way. Never could. Now you celebrate and enjoy the life that I give you by grace through your faith in me. No longer do you have to wash your hands in a particular way to approach me because I have washed your heart from the inside. It's a very, very different thing. Finally, particularly important to me and maybe to you is God's sense of timing when it comes to this transformation. Do you notice he said at the beginning, hey, my hour has not yet come. I need you to understand this Christian, follower of Jesus. 
when God moves in your life is an important factor to how God moves in your life. He often makes it seem like it's the very last second, doesn't he? Until the prayer is answered, until the pressure is released. Why does he do that? Why does he wait till the last seconds of the fourth quarter? Why does he seem to do that? It's in the scriptures. He, he says, when the fullness of time came, I sent my son. The last 400 years without a prophet. And then Jesus comes. He says to his disciples after he's ascended into heaven, go into Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. Just wait. He's going to come at the right time. And then in the end, we're waiting for Jesus to come back. And even he says, I don't know the hour of my return. Only the Father knows the hour of his return. And it seems, as I read the book of Revelation, it comes at the very last second. Why does God seem to do that? I think because when he moves in your life is a really, really, really important factor to how he moves. Why? Because he is interested in your faith, your heart. Hebrews 11 says it's impossible to please God without faith. He wants you to live a life of faith, not sight. And so very often he will wait, graciously, graciously wait to build our faith. It sure seemed like the last moment in this particular story, but let's finish it and we'll be done. I have a question for you. Who gets the glory in this account? Who is ascribed responsibility for saving the best wine until the end? When the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine, didn't know where it came from, although the servants knew where the water had came from, the head waiter called to the bridegroom and said, everybody serves the good wine first, and then when everybody's had enough, they bring out the poorer wine, but you've saved the best wine. until Who gets the glory? The groom does. What does that do to your heart when you read this story? I get a little frustrated. I get a little angry. And that's a big point in the story. We are supposed to feel that angst. Wait a second. The bridegroom has zero to do with this. He doesn't even know what's going on. He was probably like, oh, we're running out of wine. What are we going to do? And then the next moment, the head waiter brings him this cup. And he's like, man, that's really good. He has no idea what happened in between. But he gets all of the responsibility. He gets all the credit. That's part of the angst of the story. Who deserves the credit? Of course, Jesus does. And he leaves this story, watch. Making things better, revealing his ministry of greater. And what does he do? He goes and cleanses the temple. He's like, this, this earthly temple, there's something better and the temple is me. He meets Nicodemus in chapter three and he says, the life of the flesh, there's something better and greater and that's the life of the spirit. He meets the Samaritan woman in the next chapter and he was like, worshiping here on this mountain is good. I tell you, worship in the spirit of truth in me is better, it's greater. And in the end of chapter four, he does another miracle. Where? In Cana of Galilee. John is bookending this whole thing. He's like, it started in Cana and it ends in Cana in this little unit. And he says, Jesus has come to do greater things, better things. 
He's come to transform things that you don't even consider worthy of transformation. He's come to work in the details of your life, in the timing of it. He's come to make things new. He's come to release you from the law, the slavery of the law, and set you free into the adoption of daughters and sons. This little forgotten and familiar story serves as the beginning of the revelation of the ministry of Jesus. This is why verse 11 can say, this, the beginning of Jesus' signs, Jesus did in Cain of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Now we know what his glory was seen in. His ministry of transformation. Taking the water of ceremonial cleansing and transforming it into the wine of kingdom celebration. Never again, friends, never again just say that John 2 is about Jesus turning water into wine. Never. It's way bigger than that. And the story is relevant to your life right now because it's a picture of what he wants to do in you. Let me pray for you. Father, we bless you and thank you. We need you desperately. And we ask that you would bring the beauty of this story and all that it means, that you would bring it to us, that you would bring it to every single person that's tuning in right now, every single person that's here, because they have some stone water pots in their life of earning, of law, of slavery, of need, of shame and desperation. And you want to come, Jesus, our Messiah. You want to come and transform those into celebration, into grace, into life, into healing. And we just say, we trust you. We trust your timing. We trust your character. We trust your goodness. And I pray that as a blessing over everyone here in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand? Let's worship in response together. Thanks for listening to this week's message. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We invite you to connect with us. If you'd like to give to this ministry, you can do so at welcometomosaic.com slash give. Have a great week.